Listeners, welcome to another episode of Truths Be Told, the podcast, episode 29, the second last episode of Truths Be Told. I know, I know it's sad, it's sad, but you know what? Let's not focus on the fact that the show is coming to its conclusion. Let's just live in the moment and have a good time, right? Starting with me right now. Oh, yeah, that was me cracking a carbonated beverage, a bubbly. Mm. Oh, yeah, bubbly carbonated water, a little fizzy, fizzy water with uh, just a dash of cherry flavor. This isn't an advertisement, by the way. I'm not getting any money for saying this. And I'll prove it, Bubbly's carbonated water isn't anything special. It's just as good as all the other carbonated waters. Nothing special going on. It will do just fine. How are you guys doing? You guys doing good? We're still in quarantine here. Uh, But that doesn't mean we can't have a little fun. Right? Yeah. Because this is a comedy podcast. It's a comedy storytelling podcast. That's what Truth Be Told is. Every episode, I have guests on the show who tell true stories from their life that revolve around a particular theme that changes up each episode. Yes. And uh, I noticed that a lot of my episode themes over the last couple months have been... Heavy. Heavy topics. And I thought, well, the last episode was about fear. That's pretty dark. So let's keep it light. You know, we need a little levity in our lives during this dark, dark time. So this episode's theme is feel good. Yeah, feel good. Yes, yes, yes. Even though it's the end of my podcast, we can still feel good. By the way, I'll just throw this out there. I'm always going to be creating new projects. So if you want to keep up with stuff I'm creating and putting out there into the world, you can. I have a website, www.lindsaymullen.com. And I just souped it up. It looks real good right now. Love it. So go check it out. Uh, Also, my Instagram, at lindsaymullo. That's my handle. L-I-N-D-S-O-M-U-L-L-O. Give me a follow. Okay? All right. Back to our programming. So, the episode theme is Feel Good. And I got three guests on the show, remotely, of course. And uh, they all brought their own personal touch to this theme. For starters, we have... Peter Siegel, who is a Hollywood movie director. He's made some of the most memorable comedies of the last 25 years 
And uh, for sure you've seen some of his movies. He's great. Listen, me even convincing him to be on this podcast, that was me, that was me really, uh, really uh, punching above my weight class. Is that the term? Guys, I don't, I don't box. Anyways, he was so nice and so generous with his time, and he chatted with me about directing movies such as Tommy Boy, remember Tommy Boy, and Fifty First Dates, and the movie that I know him from, he directed My Spy, which just came out, and in the interview, which took place a couple weeks ago, we say that it was supposed to go to theaters, but here's a little update. You can actually see the movie My Spy, starring Dave Bautista and yours truly, on Amazon Prime. You can go watch it right now if you want. Yeah, I have one line in the movie, and it was very exciting for me. And I managed to uh, turn that one line into an interview with the director. And it's perfect because he is a director of classic feel-good movies. That's how that fits into the theme. Tommy Boy is the ultimate buddy comedy feel-good movie, right? Makes sense. Also on the show, we have Amber Nash. Again, someone where I go, I can't believe I got them to be on the show, but I did. Amber Nash, she is the voice of Pam Poovy on the very popular show, Archer. Yeah, Pam Poovy's on the show. And she has a very sweet, feel-good story that makes you believe in humanity again. The kindness of people around you. Also on the show is my friend, the very funny, the very grumpy stand-up comedian, Will Weldon. Yes, he has a very different take on a feel-good story. You see, uh, his story is a story of triumph, of victory and revenge. It's it's it's, uh, it's 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 a darker take on feel good. It makes you feel good in a bad way, if that makes sense. Great story, great episode. Very excited to jump into it with you all. But first, I'm going to share a feel good story from my life. This story is whimsical. It's a story of showbiz whimsy, and maybe even of fate. And it's a story that's in my heart and makes me think maybe dreams can come true. Hmm? Okay, so let me take you back to August 3rd, 2010. I am in New York City on a trip with my best friend Gavin. Just there for a couple days, I managed to get myself a ticket to a taping, a live taping of the hilarious show, The Colbert Rapport. Remember? Starring Stephen Colbert. And I love Stephen Colbert. He's so funny and so sweet and so charming. But also, I love Stephen Colbert when he plays a right wing nut job. Love it. So I had never been to a TV taping before. And I didn't realize that there was so much standing and waiting in line. I stood in line for like three hours. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of forced laughing. I mean, that's obvious. Um, 
not to say that it's not a funny show. Clearly, I like the show and find it funny if I would stand for three hours in lineup to go be a part of it somehow. Uh, but when you feel like you have to laugh, um, it's a little bit stressful and exhausting. I felt tired. Uh, but anyways, I'm finally in the little theater, uh, and I can see the set, and it's all very exciting, and I'm sitting with the crowd, and before you get to actually witness and participate in the show that's taping, they like to usually bring out a warm-up comic. So a stand-up comedian comes out, and they're there to do crowd work and make the audience feel great and remind them that their laughter is very important and encouraged. Um, so I'm sitting there, and this guy comes out. He does stand-up. He's okay. I don't remember much about him. I thought he was uh, somewhat, somewhat charming and uplifting. Uh, some comics can be uh, really, really good grumpy and bitter, but um, he kept his saltiness to sweetness ratio at a, at a digestible rate, if that makes sense. So he's there, he's telling his jokes, he's doing his crowd work, and listen, at the time I was a young actor, fresh out of theater school, and an improviser, and I knew the score. I knew that when a comedian does crowd work and they want to talk to audience members in their act, they do not want to talk to a performer who is sitting in the audience. It's something I hate. I hate it when I was at Second City or when I would improvise and I would have to talk to an audience member and then you find out, oh shit, they're a performer. They look way too comfortable. I can't do any of my jokes because now they're like acting like a performer with me and that that's just awkward and weird. And so I knew that the best way I could assist this guy is just, just be, you know, a regular audience member, not try and get focus, not try to participate in any way. But um, he asked the crowd questions and we'd all put up our hand. He'd say, uh, who here is uh, from out of town? And then like a ton of our hands go up. Who here is from out of the country? And of course, you know, my hand goes up with a bunch of other hands. And as he asks questions, fewer and fewer hands go up, but my hand still keeps going up. And I still don't think he's going to come to me at any point, by the way, because I think, oh, he'll pick one person to talk to and there's other people with their hand up. But no, um, he, he talks to a small handful of a few of us. I end up being one of them. And I still try and, and keep it small and simple. And he, uh, he comes to me and he says, uh, so, uh, where are you from? I say, Canada. He makes some joke. And then he says, uh, and what do you do for a living? Again, I don't want to be in his way. I want him to make all the wonderful career-based jokes he can. But, uh, I also don't want to lie. So I just said, oh, I'm a student. To kind of avoid the question, he said, okay, what are you studying? I said, well, I just finished studying theater. And he's, he did something to the effect of, ooh. 
And he said, so you're an actor? And I said, uh, sheepishly, I said, yeah. And he, uh, he said something that kind of surprised me. He didn't have a joke or some rude quip. Instead, he said, you know what? I think when you're in show business, the number one thing you need is a lot of luck. You need good luck. And he said, especially if, you know, you're, uh, you're going to try and be an actor. And then he said, I want to help give you some luck. And he kind of goes to the audience and said, hey, everyone, should we give her some luck? And of course, everyone cheers and claps. And then he says, um, come up on the stage with me. And he brings me up on the stage and on the set is the desk that Stephen Colbert sits at um, for every episode. And he said, I want you to go over and rub Stephen's desk for some luck. And maybe, maybe it'll give you a little, uh, little good luck for your career. And everyone cheered. And in my heart, I know that he does this show over and over again, and he always has some actor, I'm sure, in the audience, or some aspiring comedian or comedy nerd. And I'm sure I am not the first, and I'm sure I wasn't the last person to be brought up on stage to rub the desk. But in that moment when I stood up and the whole crowd cheered, I could feel my cheeks red, I could feel a smile on my face, and I went up to the desk and I put my hand on it, and I rubbed it. And honestly, I think I felt a little bit of magic. Just a little bit. Just a little bit of hope. And I sat back down, and yes, it was lovely when Stephen Colbert himself came out for a Q&A, and it was lovely watching the show, and it was very interesting. But that was probably one of the most memorable moments of that trip. And if I ever get the chance to meet Stephen Colbert, if my career ever does, you know, take off, I would like to tell him that happened. Maybe I'll meet him. Maybe. I actually did get to ask him a question in the Q&A. I asked Stephen Colbert what he was afraid of, and he said bears. So that was nice. But the point is, is it was a nice moment, and when you're 20, and you're in New York, and you're a little Canadian who's still filled with dreams and potential, and you're like, I could be an actor, I could go to the big city, when you're still in that frame of mind, a moment like rubbing a famous con comedian's desk, um can uh, really fill you with wonder and joy. That's my feel-good story, guys. Oh, it's a sweet story. Sweet, sweet moment. Okay, moving right along. Now it is time for the quote of the episode. Yeah, this is always fun. And for the feel-good episode of this show... It made sense to me to do a quote that's all about happiness. That seemed obvious, right? And just so you know, every famous name in the game has a quote about happiness. Everyone's got an opinion. 
It was stiff competition picking a quote. George Bernard Shaw had something to say. Jane Austen had something to say. Aristotle had something to say. Everyone's got something to say. But it was the comedian George Burns that stole my heart with his quote. Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. And with that perfect slice of honesty, I bring you to this episode of Truth Be Told. Enjoy. I'm on the phone right now with Hollywood movie director Peter Siegel. Hello, Peter. Hey, how are you? Good. I'm very good. Are, are you safe and, and uh, healthy? Is everything good? Yes. I am uh, sequestered, as we all are, and I was just actually looking at the newspaper because we have this spectacular California poppy bloom because we had a, a bunch of rain earlier this month, and now uh, they closed all of the areas where you can go see all of these hills and mountains covered in orange blooms. Oh. So it's... A, a little sad. You're sad. Well, that oh, I are I you go out tomorrow? Really to go look at poppies? Yeah. Oh, it's you should look it up. It's spectacular. Okay. What what general area is that? Well, well, if you were in LA, it's uh, Antelope Valley and also um, Lake Elsinore. We went last year, oh and I've God. never seen anything like it. Oh, see, yeah. I haven't heard. That particular anecdote, yes, but but yeah. you are you're doing okay. Are you getting a doing little okay. stir crazy? I am cooking my butt off right now. I am I'm actually cooking so much that my family's now saying, "Really, that again?" <laughs> I'm like, you know what? You try it. <laughs> uh, well, good. I'm glad that you're still feeling sane, um, Peter. I am going to make you blush right now because I'm going to list off your film credits. Okay. Just, Blush away. Okay, yes. Um, you've directed a lot of movies, a lot of uh, favorite comedies, um, such as Tommy Boy, Fifty First Dates, Anger Management, The Longest Yard, Get Smart, Grudge Match, Second Act, and most recently, um, the new family action comedy movie with Dave Bautista, My Spy. Yes. Also with you in it. Oh, yes, and and what, what a shame it is that I didn't make it to the poster. Um, <laughs> yes, that's how we met each other. You see, I had one line in the movie, and I somehow weaseled that into a podcast interview with you. <laughs> you have more than one line, don't you? No, I'll say I, I make a grimace. I, listen, I... I'm I'm very happy with the line. I really I'm happy. Well, your line your line gets a big laugh. <laughs> I'm glad. I wanted yeah. see when it came out, I was very excited cuz I'm like this is the first time I speak in an like an American movie. And I was yeah. like this is exciting. I'm going to go to the theater and I'm going to see what other people are like. But then it came out in Canada right when the lockdown happened. So yeah. I missed yeah. out on that, but I'm still Oh, I'm just so tickled. So it was it was really wonderful. Um, I I want to just ask you. Uh, first, I want to start with Tommy Boy. So it's recently been the 25th anniversary since Tommy Boy came out, and uh, I must be the last 
um, comedian of my generation who hadn't seen it yet. The last one. So I, it was on my list a long time. And so last night I watched it over FaceTime with someone who'd already seen it. And it was, you know what, for lack of a better word, let's call him my boyfriend. I watched it with my boyfriend. And um, the thing is, is if anyone has seen it and you watch it with someone who's not seen it, they will quote everything. Like (laughs) with Chris Farley, five seconds before he says anything, I mean, it was like it was like a sing along, and it really got me thinking about the cultural impact that film has had. How do you feel looking back on it, like the impact that movie has had in the comic consciousness? Well, the the first thing I have to say about that, with regards to you and living in um, Toronto, is we filmed Tommy Boy in Toronto. I noticed the distillery district. I was like, wait, is that Toronto? Yeah, and uh, I have not been back to Toronto since, and then my spy was the first time in, you know, 24 years that I was back to your hometown. Wow. And um, and we got to shoot part of My Spy at the Good Orman Wurtz Distillery. Uh, and when the crew took me there, um, it was kind of a surprise because they didn't say where we were going. And I got out of the van and I said, huh, something's really familiar about this place. And I couldn't recognize it because they built a huge apartment building right in front of the distillery. And, you know, and back then, you know, in uh, the early 90s, it was empty warehouses with huge rats <laughs> and they were starting to make to to make office space out of it. But now it's like spectacular. It's like wine and cheese shops. And oh, it's so and, it's so shishy there now. Yeah, oh, it's unbelievable. But I didn't. And finally, as I was walking around, it hit me where I was um, and it was really cool. And, and actually, a lot of the crew. Uh, act, uh, had worked on Tommy Boy, and they were like coming out of the woodwork. I think there was probably twelve people we worked with on My Spy who were also on Tommy Boy. But the thing that they all said and relates to your question is, when anyone looks at their resume, the the film they always wanted to ask questions about and talked about was Tommy Boy. And I never would have predicted it twenty five years ago when we were making that movie. We only had half a script. Uh, it was I thought it was going to be a disaster because. I felt like I was laying out the train tracks in front of the locomotive every day trying to figure out what tomorrow we're going to be shooting. And um, the fact that so many people are still remembering not only the movie, but the, you know, the lines and the quotability of it, I think is phenomenal. I'm, I'm completely humbled by it and, and also very unexpected. Wow. Um, I mean, it's interesting I asked a bunch of friends who love the movie, what what is it about that comedy that they love? And um, they said it's the chemistry between David Spade and Chris Farley. And it got me thinking how they were real life close friends. What's it like working with two actors who know each other really well? Well, it was one of the reasons that we were able to make the movie because um, it was originally pitched by Lauren Michaels to the head of Paramount, Sherry Lansing, as a stepbrother story about Chris Farley's character and Rob Lowe's character. And I had a different idea. I wanted to make it more about, you know, Spade and Farley's characters, you know, that they didn't like each other and they had to work together to save this 
factory and save the town. And because of that consternation, um, we missed the summer hiatus uh, where all the SNL people get to go off and have fun and do a movie. Um, and so we started shooting it right at the beginning of the Saturday Night Live season. So oh, wow. I would have them in Toronto Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They'd be on a plane Wednesday night. They'd be in New York Thursday, Friday, Saturday and come home Sunday. But because they were gone the second half of the week, Fred Wolf, the co-head writer of SNL at the time and who did most of the writing on Tommy Boy, he and I got to write, you know, the following week's work. And so that made it that made it possible. Wow. And um, did you find that uh, they must have improvised a lot? Are there scenes in the movie that are kind of made up by you guys just coming up with a fun idea and trying it? Well, we didn't improv a lot, but because Chris and Dave were office mates at Saturday Night Live and because they were good friends, a lot of times I would just practically follow them around with a pad and pencil and <laughs> and write down what they would say because Dave would just know how to make Chris belly laugh. One time, for example, we were doing uh, wardrobe tests and Chris came out of the wardrobe trailer in his now iconic brown tweed jacket and right. said, hey, Dave, does this suit make me look fat? And Dave said, no, your face does. And I went, well, that's going in the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I would just, I would write down things that they would say, fat guy in little coat was something that Chris would do at Saturday Night Live. Yes, that was just, something I was wondering. I was like, this seems so natural and not forced yeah. in any way. Yeah. And that was him, except in... At SNL, he would do it to annoy the writers. He'd go in and he'd take their coats off the rack and he'd try putting them on and he'd say, he'd just say, fat guy in a little coat, fat guy in a little coat. So when we shot the movie, because Chris is so used, was so used to live television and uh, Second City in Chicago, which is, you know, on stage, live, obviously, he was got a little bored when the camera turned around off him and he was now off camera doing lines with Dave. And so in his boredom, he started singing Fat Gun Little Coat. And I didn't notice it at first because I was paying attention to Dave. And my editor that night, Bill Kerr, called me and said, dude, did you look at the dailies? He's singing it off camera. It's hilarious. You got to go back and have him do it again. Huh. I'm like, oh, my God. And so we went back. It was sort of an accident. Um, but those are the kinds of things that, you know, yes, we, we took from their lives. We took from our lives, Fred and I. You know, as we were, you know, talking about what the movie was and trying to figure out where to go, we said, well, let's just write down things that happened to us on road trips. And wow. so the gas station hyperextending the door, that actually happened to me at a gas station. I parked too far away from it. What? I forgot I left. That happened. And uh, I was on a date in high school on a lake in Scottsdale, Arizona, and there was a dead calm and all these, this group of boys on the shore were heckling me and I yelled at them and I said, Hey, you know, Chris is much better yeller than me. Let's put that in. Wow. And then Fred finally, like the, the oil can under the hood thing actually happened to Fred. And so he said, Oh, you know, and we just put them on index cards, threw them on the floor and started to piece together something. I love that. That's great. Um, I want to ask you, a, a, just pivoting a bit into directing stuff, I'm very curious, uh, you know, film being a director's medium, uh, you've made some very 
big budget comedies or, or, or very successful studio movies. I'm curious, what is, what's it like for someone in your position um, with uh, studios and your creativity? Do you find that they give you a lot of um, power to do what you want to do? Or, or when you're at that level, do you find that y there's a lot of control from somewhere else? Well, I learned uh, on my first film, uh, Naked Gun, uh, which was the final installment of it, from David Zucker. I asked the same question to him. I said, how does this work? You know, I came from television, and I said, he said, the great thing about comedy, Pete, is the studio doesn't get it. <laughs> right. They're, they trust us because they know we're funny, uh, and they, you know, um, they'll listen. And he was right. And, and the, the best thing is, you know, two people can argue about, I think this joke on paper is funny. I don't. Well, the ultimate test, and it's great by me, is let the audience decide. And right. so what the Zucker brothers learned from the Marx brothers was they test their material. And the Marx brothers were famous for taking – uh, the material from their movies, and before they shot any film, they they do it in dinner theater across the country, and they'd know where the laughs were and where they weren't. And so by the time they got to the set, the movie had already, in essence, been shot, but without film. Well, for us, uh, David Zucker said, we're going to record the audience. So if we ever have an argument saying, I remember in the screening last night, that got a pretty good laugh, and someone else might say, eh, it was a so-so laugh. Let's go to the tape. And we play back the audio. Well, what I did on my second movie, which was Tommy Boys, I'd just been given a, a, a gift, a, a Sony Handycam, and it had this night vision feature. And I said, hey, why don't we try filming the audience with night vision? They won't know the camera's there, but I think we might be able to learn something from watching them watch the movie. And so we would do that, and we learned a lot. Now it's industry standard. Everyone does it. Wow. But – so you, you can't have any arguments with the studio at that point. You, you know, if they say, oh, I love that joke. Why did you cut it? I said, well, it got crickets. It's, you know, didn't get anything, so it's out. And, and then we could show them, you know, and if they forgot, for example, uh, because a lot of times the studio will be at these test screenings. So they, you know, to answer your question, I think at the end of the day, now that everyone tests with these night vision cameras, everyone knows that there's going to be empirical data it won't just be their own opinion. Right. And do you find that you get maybe a longer leash in a way because you've proven yourself over the years? Like, did do you feel like you had to prove yourself more in meetings in the past than you do now? A little bit. But then again, you know, on paper, there will be set pieces that might be maybe a little more expensive and they'll come from a financial angle why they don't want me to shoot something so it's whether or not i say yeah but this is going to crush i think you know i keep the i think part inside my head <laughs> now. um but uh you know so i'll still have those debates like i said now as you were mentioning at the beginning there are no more comedies that are being made for 80 million dollars like they were back in the days of the sandler movies that i did or, or get smart now you know, my spy, for example, was eighteen million dollars. Huh. Um, and so, yeah. And so, when you're shooting an eighteen million dollar movie and you write in an action sequence at an airport, 
where a plane is, you know, hung up on the edge of a cliff, they say, no way, we can't afford that. And I say, let me try, let me figure it out. And, you know, I'll show you the storyboards. And so we still have back and forth, but they're over different kinds of things now. Right. Um, I want to ask you, I noticed when looking through uh, your IMDb that you've worked with, uh, even really early on, some some big names. And you've worked with my personal favorite actor. Uh, you worked with Jack Lemon, which, oh my God. So I yeah. wanted to ask you, what's it like when you're early on in your career and you have to give, or even any part in your career, giving notes to actors like De Niro or Jack Nicholson, like, is that super stressful? Like giving an acting note to somebody of that level? Well, you hit it on the head. And it, to me, it was about age and experience. And I'm referring to my age when I was 30, directing my first movie, Naked Gun, and I would talk to Leslie Nielsen, who was 70. Right. And he, he was very tough on me. He was um, really, really, really tough because he didn't trust me because I was a, a little punk and I got it. And I realized that, you know, as I got older and my hair changed color <laughs> I got, and I had a few movies under my belt um, and they, you know, did well that they're, you know, I, I got more respect a little bit sooner, but there's still always a. I call it the first two weeks, I think, of any movie where every actor, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, that you look at the director going, okay, I hope so. You know, I hope you know what you're doing because I could look really foolish. Yeah. You know, and especially older actors. So Jack Lemmon uh, had a lot of scenes with Lauren Bacall. Now, oh my God. <laughs> going up to Jack Lemmon and Lauren Bacall and giving them a note or a suggestion. And then one time, Lauren was, they're both wonderful people. Um, and Lauren had a really great sense of humor. She said, you know, I've been directed by John Ford. Mm. I'm like, yeah, I, I, know. <laughs> I sound so pathetic right now. But uh, I swear, it's going to work. It's going to work. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he, was, he was a lovely guy. Oh, my gosh. So lucky. I'm so, I'm so jealous that you got to meet him. Um, uh, oh, okay, so... In the world of directors, obviously, you know, if you were a big cinephile, you would you would know the work of Hitchcock or David Fincher and Spielberg and whatever, and, and you'd be able to say, oh, they each have their own distinct sensibility and style that's really them. Um, if someone did a film class on the movies you made, what do you think is the specific thing that you inject into your work that you think this is Peter Siegel's thing? Do you have a thing consciously in your head? I don't. I, I'm really. I'm really not like Wes Anderson, where if you look at a Wes Anderson movie and the way he frames every shot very symmetrically, you say, "Oh, that, that's very Wes Anderson." Mm. Uh, or if it's Tim Burton and the art direction is very recognizable in a Tim Burton movie, you go, "Oh, that looks like a Tim Burton movie." Right. I, I don't. I don't. I don't try to have anything that. I've never really made that a goal of mine. Each movie that I do is a different kind of comedy, even though they've all been comedies. Some are, you know, political, like you mentioned, the the Jack Lemon one, My Fellow Americans, or they're sports comedies or romantic comedies. And I think each of them requires its own style. And so because the movies are different, the styles are different. Right. 
Okay, that's uh, yeah, because I I feel like in watching a few of your movies, maybe it's maybe it's a tone thing. Like I do feel like there's like a, a musicality to it where you feel like there's you know when the, the the artist you can tell that there's something similar in a lot of their work, even though their work is all different and varied. I don't know. I is noticed. It, I noticed. Yeah, something. no, that's that's an interesting. That's, I, I have uh, had a couple of comments about my spy feeling like. Um, it's it's comfort food from a few years ago. It, it feels like it's got a nostalgic quality to it, and I thought, huh, I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's my style, because um, I certainly wasn't trying to do uh, trying to do that consciously. But um, it's interesting that you say a musicality to it. That's something that also Jack Nicholson said that there's there's a music and a, a, a rhythm, almost a musical rhythm to comedy. Well, and I'd never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yet again, another thing Jack and I have in common. <laughs> um, um, okay, I'm gonna just throw you a weird, a uh, weird curveball question. I was looking uh, up stuff about you on IMDb and and Wikipedia, and most of it's just uh, standard film stuff. But then it made me laugh that on your IMDb page, it it says very. Um, very succinctly, is married to a dentist named Linda. And I don't know why I found that funny. I guess I was curious. It's got me thinking, like, if your wife's a dentist, is she your dentist? Yeah, she's my dentist. And by the way, I I don't know who makes up the <laughs> IMDb pages. I never have understood why that's there. I never, like, said it to anybody. I mean, it's such an <laughs> odd thing to have in my bio. And, and then I see that there are some people that their bios are beautifully written, obviously, by them. And sometimes, <laughs> most of the time, way too long. And then I thought, how do you change anything in IMDb? Because I've tried. Um, and you, you can't get through. I'll help I, you out. I'll help you out. <laughs> do, you, do you know anybody? I, I've I changed my IMDb before. I, I can help you out. Um, but I, I do think you should keep is married to a dentist named Linda because there's just so much mystery in that statement. I want to know about Linda. You don't have to tell me <laughs> anything about Linda. I'm curious. Did you meet at the dentist office? It just feels like I don't know. Um, well, she um, actually, no, she was uh, the entertainment at a bachelor party that I threw for a friend of mine. That is the truth. Wait, you mean, wait, yeah, yep. really? <laughs> I'll give you the 30-second story. So I was working for this guy, and I was very good friends with his wife-to-be, and I said, I, I'm going to you know, throw Steve a, a, a bachelor party, and I'm going to have the proverbial stripper just letting you know. But after that, I want to do something funny that will really shock him. And she said, well, I've got this beautiful girlfriend of mine who goes to UCLA dental school, why don't we see if we can, I'll, I'll try to persuade her, we'll get her drunk, she'll wear a bikini, uh, she'll put a mask on so she, you know, Steve won't recognize her, and then she is going to tell him that, uh, blindfold him and say she's about to give him the best mouth job he's ever had, and then clean his teeth. And oh went, my god! <laughs> and so she came and they actually got her drunk enough to do this, and to this day, it's the m most amount of alcohol I've ever seen her uh, ingest. Uh, and the first thing I said is I looked into this, somebody who was recording it on a camera, and I didn't know this until we were getting married a year later. I looked into the camera, and the first thing I said is, I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to meet my future wife. It's on oh tape. Oh, my God. It's on tape. I was joking, of course, but 
it's real. So. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I got. Way more than I bargained for in that story. <laughs> like holy shit. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's cute. I love I love yeah. stories. I ask everyone next to me on an airplane how they met their wife. Um, yeah. Okay. So the last thing I want to ask you is I I noticed that I don't know if it if IMDb is trustworthy or not, but you are going to be directing a remake of the 1950s Jimmy Stewart movie Harvey. Is that true? Uh, I was and uh, oh no, it, we'll cut this. We'll cut this. Well, no, no, it, it, it fell apart. No, but it's it's cool because uh, speaking of De Niro, I had Robert De Niro, Christoph Waltz, and Jennifer Aniston attached. Oh my god! Um, but the the movie fell apart. Oh, I'm so, sorry. We can cut this. IMDb. We can. Well, cut it's this. fine. I, I don't care if you you leave it in or not. But it's it's another thing about IMDb. It's it's really hard to update projects that are dead. I'm actually credited on IMDb on a on a TV show that's on right now that I had nothing to do with. What really? And it says I'm, yeah, it says I'm executive producer of a show called Outmatched, and I'm like I am. Uh, so you know, I don't know. Okay, well, I may need your help. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna just just uh, hire me to be in charge of your IMDb, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll flesh out that. Uh, great Linda story on your bio there. <laughs> uh, we can leave that one. Off. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, I want to thank you so much for, for taking time out of your quarantine life to talk to me, even though we don't know each other. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again. And, uh, Oh, my spy, my spy was yes. supposed to come out in movie theaters this month. Um, but is there any, thing happening now that this covid thing is an issue yeah i mean talk about uh, our life being turned upside down i was in uh, on friday march 13th friday the 13th i was in atlanta two weeks away from beginning principal photography on a, a drama series for stars called heels and that was the day that my spy was also supposed to open in theaters mm-hmm. um and I was sent home from Atlanta, and the movie got shut down because of COVID. Uh, and like in Canada, it, it fortunately, in America, they pushed the movie one month, which now it's been pushed beyond because April 17th has come and gone, and we were still in lockdown. But they weren't fast enough to stop it from being released for 30 hours <laughs> in Canada and in in Britain and a lot of countries overseas. And so it opened and closed within 30 hours, like a lot of movies. So fortunately what happened is uh, the streamers started calling our studio, begging for uh, the opportunity to bid on it because they were desperate for new material because, you know, all, all the streamers had to shut down their own productions and they only have so much library material especially for families and so um amazon bought us uh and they uh they're they're still finalizing the deal so we don't know what date but it's going to be in the next uh couple to a few weeks um but that's our new home that's that's well that's a good uh little bit of luck there yes i would say so great okay well then great you can see my spy with dave batista directed by you and uh, don't blink, I'm there too. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Peter. You're welcome. All right. I'm going to end healthy. The... Thank you. You too. <laughs>
I am so lucky because I have a very talented and funny lady on the phone with me right now, all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Her name is Amber Nash, and she is an actor, an improviser. She is best known as the voice of Pam Poovy on the much-loved animated series Archer. Hi, Amber. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Yay! I've wanted to have you on the show since I met you a couple years ago at the Edmonton Fringe. You saw my show Tease, and ever since then I was like... it made me cry. Oh my god, really? You cried? (laughs) Yes, I cried. I was like so weird about it. It was just such a great show, and then I cried, and I talked to you afterwards, and I like couldn't stop crying. And I was like, what a weirdo I am. (laughs) Yes, yes, well I feel like it's the only strip show where people are crying at the end. So uh, I I really appreciate it, and I liked chatting with you about it. And ever since then, I was like, if I ever have my mic on me, I got to get a story from her. Um, So you have a story, a feel-good story, and I have no idea what it is, and I'd love to hear it. Great. Okay, so this one, it's it spans over many decades, so I'll have to hop around a little bit just to give you some context about how it all happened. Okay. So it started when I was five, when I was five years old, and I still had all my baby teeth. Like, maybe I was losing a few teeth. I don't have children. I'm not exactly sure what time children lose their teeth, but I'm pretty sure I still had all my baby teeth at this time. And um, I was out playing in the neighborhood that I lived in, which is just in the suburbs of Atlanta, and... um, I was tripped by one of my friend's older brothers. Like, he was being a bully, and he, like, tripped me on purpose. And I fell down and busted my face up. But what happened was that my my front right baby tooth was jammed up into my gum. Oh, my and God. And broke off. Yeah, it broke off half of my adult tooth that was waiting to come in. <sighs> Sorry, where in so the mouse? When, just so I know, because I'm a real tooth yeah. person where in the mouth is this tooth located so it's my front my two front teeth it's the right one. Oh my god okay yeah so right in the front so then when i was old enough that my uh, my other teeth fell out and my big tooth came in it was only half there so i had like a snaggle tooth for many years and my mom cut my hair for me so i was like <laughs> a very unfortunate looking kid so the problem with that was is that you know i had to get like, I had, like, a weird, I was a kid, so, like, my face was going to grow, my head was going to grow, my teeth were going to change sizes, I guess, and so the doctor was like, hey, well, just kind of, like, patch it, you know, like, they just kind of put, like, some, like, putty over it to kind of make it look like it would maybe match my, my other teeth, so just, like, my whole life, I either had a snaggle tooth or, like, a really janky-looking, like, fake tooth in the front of my mouth. And I actually, as I've gotten older, I found out that a lot of people have a fake front tooth because, you know, shit happens when you're a kid and you bust your tooth out. This is the same with me. My front two teeth cracked them when I was a child. The bottom half is yeah. fake. And, yeah, I feel ya. It, it, I constantly... Yeah. Do you obsess looking at your teeth in the mirror? Oh, always, yeah. And I'm still having problems with it to this day. Like, it's just been round and round, like, constantly going through crap with it. It's just, like, been a giant pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. So, um, so flash forward... 
to my 20s. At this point, I was probably like, I think I was like 28. And I had lots of different versions of this tooth and lots of different problems, but I had the real root of my tooth. It was still there. So it's not like I had it like pulled out and it was like just a fake tooth. They were just trying to keep my real tooth in there. But um, I was working, this is when I started working at Dad's Garage, which is the improv theater that I'm part of in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And when I started, I was only the second woman to have ever been inducted into the ensemble. So there was like, it was very much a boys club. Like it was wow. just a bunch of dudes. Yeah. A bunch of dudes. And this wasn't in the 1940s. Like this was like <laughs> in the 90s, right? Like there were no excuses so, for it. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, um, so I had all these guy friends and it was very much like a bunch of big brothers and it was very much a boys club. And I was the education director. I became the education director. Director um, at the theater, and so that's like where I spent all my time. And these guys were my buds, and I was on stage and working in the office all the time. And I woke up one morning and I had like a giant fat lip, and I was like, "What on with my fat lip?" And so and I was so broke, like I didn't have health insurance because you know I live in the states, and I was making like very little money doing improv and being the education director. So I went to the dentist, and the dentist was like it's really bad, you're going to have to get it, like a root canal and like all this stuff done. And like I'd just become an actor and was like doing all this stage work and I was like, what's going to happen with my face? Right. So I was like really super stressed out about it. And so like I cried all the way to work and like I was at the theater and I was just like super bummed out. And so I worked like half of a day and then I went and did some shows with a big fat lip because that's just how it was. <laughs> and I had told some of the guys in the theater, they're like, what's going on? Like, why are, you, why are you upset? And what's up with your face? And so I told them what was happening. And then I went back to my desk that I had at the theater after the show. And I had a flip phone because it was like, I don't know, like 2003 or something. And there was a $100 bill, like, like folded into my flip phone. What? And I was like, what? what is this? And so I looked around and one of the other guys that worked there that was the improv director at the time, Tim Stoltenberg, was like, I think it's for the dentist. And I was like, what? And I didn't know who it was from. And I didn't know why it was there. And so then I, I was like, oh, my God, that's just so crazy. Because all these guys, like, we're all just young people. Like, nobody's, like, rolling in money, you know? And so then the next day, one of the other guys gave me a card, and it had 100 bucks in it. And then the day after that, somebody took me to lunch and, like, paid for my lunch and then gave me, like, 80 bucks. Wait, did you announce like, this on stage or something, or just to your no, troop? just my friends had heard about it, and all the guys in the ensemble had kind of kind of realized what was going on. And I was younger than everybody, so they were all kind of doing a little bit better in life. And so they all just kind of decided I, uh, on their own. And then I think once people, other people started doing it, they're like, "Well, I want to be, I want to do it too." <laughs> and so they just started giving me money until I finally had the eight hundred dollars it was going to cost. To get my tooth fixed. Oh my god. I yeah. love Isn't that. Isn't that the sweetest? I, I, <laughs> I resonate with that on such an extreme level, I can't even tell you. I uh-huh. Like, not only the, the front two thing, two teeth that I hit when I was a kid, and they're still there and they're alive, but they're little slightly yellower, just slightly than the other ones. Yeah. But I have a tooth on the bottom that my orthodontist killed by tightening my braces too tight oh my god he turned it gray so i i obsessed over it same thing as you and i ended up having to pay to get veneers on my bottom teeth and yeah. i 
I would hide my smile. I, I, I stare at it in photos. I, I obsess over it, Amber. Like yeah. the idea that a bunch of people could come together and give you the money for that is so like I got yeah. choked up just thinking about that. I know, isn't it the sweetest story? And like, you know, I always complain, like coming up with a bunch of dudes in an improv theater, like, you know, I was their little sister and I got you know, like, of course they were assholes a lot of the time, but, like, at the end of the day, like, they're my family, and they were back then, and they, they are now, and, like, we always come together and, like, help people, like, whenever anybody's, like, having a crisis, like, it's like our church, you know, like, something goes out, and everybody rallies and puts money together and, like, gives it to the person that's in need, like, it's just, it's such a special place, and even back then, I was like, you guys are a bunch of dicks, but, like, at the end of the day, they're, they're my brothers, and they take care of me, you know, it's pretty amazing. That I really like that story. I think maybe maybe it's just also maybe it's actors. I don't know. Like the average yeah. person might be like, why not just have the ugly tooth? But <laughs> but it's not an option. It really isn't. Yeah. Oh, okay, I loved that. That was very good. Um, Yay! That made me feel good. Yeah, I like it. It's not too dramatic, but it's it's a sweet little something. Um, so yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about your character on Archer because I feel like it would okay. be a waste having this uh, amazing job and experience you've had and not asking you about it. And I reached out to friends and it, it turns out very popular show, very popular. Um, and uh, so many friends of mine love the show. And when they heard that I was talking to Pam Poovy, they all got very excited and, um, I filtered out all the embarrassing things people wanted me to ask you. Sure. I said, sure. well, that's not happening. I have to know this person on some level. Um, but I did select three questions, which you have not okay. heard. Um, and, um, maybe you can just, uh, tell us your experience. So one person that sure. I know asked, do you and your character Pam Poovy have anything in common? Yeah, you know, I get that a lot, and I think that I I always say that I wish that I was more like Pam, because she is, like, she doesn't give a shit what people think about her, she's, like, body positive and sex positive, and just, like, she just is, like, unstoppable, and so sometimes, like, when I need extra power because of, like, a difficult thing that I have to do, I'm like, what would, what would Pam do in this situation, because she's just as unapologetic about who she is, so that, not as much, but... I think that, like, like in the story I just told, like, she is very much, like, one of the boys, and she is rough and tumble, and she's got a dirty mouth, and I feel like those are all kind of things that are part of my life as well, um, but she's definitely a lot more capable than I am, like, she could, you know, she can drive any kind of vehicle, and, like, she could kill anybody with her bare hands, <laughs> right. so in those ways, not as much, yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to throw in one that I have for you as a, okay. as a, as a fellow working actor, what does it mm -hmm. feel like to, after years of slogging it out, land a huge gig that you know will change your oh. life? What does that feel like? Does it hit you immediately or is it a gradual thing? It, it takes, it takes some time and in the beginning too. And I think because I'm an improviser and because it like improv is such a team sport, like I didn't, and I was older, like I was 32 when I started working on the show and it started to become really popular when I was like 34, 35. And so I think too, like I didn't want to be, I didn't want to make anybody feel 
shitty. Like, I didn't want to brag about it. I, I was actually kind of uh, shy about it in the beginning. And I would always say, well, I'm on this show. People would be like, what are you doing? I'd be like, I'm on this show called Archer. And they're like, yeah, we've heard of that. That's like saying, like, I'm on this show called Futurama. Right. And so, like, I finally got... It, it, it took it took some time. Like I, did, I didn't want to be a total dick about it. And I was actually at an improv festival at Dad's. We were having people in from from all over the the, the country and Canada. And I opened up my laptop, and my back the background of my laptop was a picture from Archer. And one of the guys was like, "Oh, cool! I love that show." And I was like, "I'm on that show." And he's like, "No fucking way!" And that was like the first time that it was like a peer kind of realized what I was doing. And he said. Uh, aside from the people that I worked with every day, and he said, it must be like winning the lottery. And that's exactly what it's like, because, you know, it's just like we, I mean, and I still like, I still work so hard to try to get stuff going and to get jobs. Like, I thought I was just going to be able to kick back and like the phone would just be ringing off the hook. And it's not like that at all. <laughs> it's the same as it was. You know, it's a little bit different, of course, but yeah, it was, it it was hard and it was crazy and it took some time. Um, but it is, it is like winning the lottery. Like it's the, it's the best. And then on top of that, like a lot of shows maybe don't make it past the pilot or maybe don't make it past the first season. And so the fact that we've been on for like 10 years, yeah, Yeah. 10 years, our 11th season starting this year, it's like, holy shit, like, I'm so, I, it still sometimes seems fake, like, I'm still like, is this really happening? So and I try to keep it, you know, I try to be the same person I was as best I can, and I still do shows at Dad's Garage every weekend that we're open, and, like, and that I'm in town, and so I try to keep my life as similar as it was before it all happened. That's great, it's a good answer. I got excited on Thanks. your behalf hearing that. I felt like I was there. <laughs> Um, okay, so another question we got here was, uh, are, oh, I think this is interesting. Are people attracted to her based on her character? I legit had a crush on her, but I have no idea what she looks like. Oh! So do you find that people are, do people, I don't know, that maybe that's hard to answer, but do you find that people get crushes on you because of your voice? Interesting. I don't know. I definitely know that, like, Pam, the character, like, people love that character. She's very, like, she's kind of like a sex symbol in her own right, which is so weird because she's a cartoon. Um, But I don't know if anybody's ever, like, I don't know if anybody's ever gotten a crush on me just because of my voice. I hope so. I think it's happened, (laughs) but how would they tell you, right? This is, like, I bet it's happened. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and um, here's the last one. Maybe it's out there. Okay. Someone says, um, seeing as this is a podcast, would you mind doing the voice of Pam Poovey? Oh, sure. I'll totally do it. And I'll say this because people will be like, wait, you just, you just, said, you just said it in your own voice. The, the thing, when I first started doing uh, voice work for these guys, they were making another show for Adult Swim, and it was uh, it, it was a show that was just insane called Frisky Dingo, and one of the things that they kind of came to as their aesthetic is they didn't like people to do character voices, like they didn't want people to do character voices because they thought that it was too hard to maintain, and they wanted to use like regular actors, not like voice actors, Right. and so when I first started doing Pam, they're like, we don't want you to do a character voice, and I was like, okay, but this is what I think she's going to sound like, and so it was a lot like my voice, but just a little more Midwestern, and a little bit higher, and the 
funny thing is, is my friend was saying that like in se- in season one, I sound a lot more like Amber, but as time goes on, I start to sound more like Pam. <laughs> so I just know that when I when I say it. So her line that everybody kind of knows really well is, "Holy shit, snacks." <laughs> That's, that's why I always sign on people's like posters and what people always want me to say when when they see me at cons. Oh my god! You know you're gonna you're gonna hear that line when you're on your deathbed, right? Like in, I know, it's gonna be on my on my gravestone. You're gonna be looking for a moment of peace, and the nurse is gonna go, "Excuse me." Um, <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and I loved your story, and I hope that I get to see you again in person again someday. Yeah, me too. I hope so. Best of luck, and I'll always remember you as the person (laughs) that made me cry at a burlesque show. Before you finish that sentence, it really made it sound like I was dying. (laughs) I'll always remember you, and then you took a big inhale. (laughs) Thank you, Amber. Uh, Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Believe it or not, there has never been a better time to start dating. Stay with me here. Yes, there is a global pandemic. Yes, we are confined to our homes right now. But that doesn't mean our love life has to suffer. In the last few episodes, I mentioned a new dating app called High Dating App. Well, they've had a bit of a name change, and they are now called XO. It has a nice ring to it. I like the new name better. XO Dating App. And this app is changing the game. You see, with most dating apps, you're swiping away, and then hopefully you match with someone. And for a moment, you're very excited. You're elated. A potential connection. Hurrah. But then, a moment of uh, self-doubt appears. Your stomach flips as you realize, oh my god, what do I say to this person? I'm tongue-tied. They're a complete stranger. Well, XO Dating App is taking the awkwardness out of dating. The app has built-in icebreakers that help you connect and show off your personality. Yes, there's games and quizzes that you can take with the person you've matched with. Drawing games, word games. You can play Kiss, Mary Fight. The silly quizzes, there's all kinds. I even wrote a quiz for the app. You can look it up. My quiz is called, What Type of Emotional Terrorist Are You? fun. So make sure you go on to the app store and download XO. XO dating app will help you connect with a person in your area and you never even have to meet face to face. You can social distance, but that doesn't mean your heart has to social distance. Cute. So go download XO dating app. Bye-bye. I am on Skype audio with stand-up comedian and general uh, grumpus, Will Weldon. Hi. Hi. What is it? Okay. What does it matter specifically what program we were using to talk right now? (laughs) 
don't know. Could it just you could just said I'm on the phone with. Listen, like it's listen. people wouldn't be sitting around like ooh uh, audio quality. I'm guessing that Skype. Well, listen, Zoom is blowing up right now during the quarantine. Skype might want want you know they might throw a little money our way for the help. That's uh, <laughs> that's that seems reasonable and practical. A little endorsement deal? What's wrong with that? Anyways, you're living up to your name. You're a stand-up comedian and you're a curmudgeon. And I'm so happy mm-hmm. to have you on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Neither of those things are my name, though. So I'm not really living up to my name. All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> Will is here. Will and I have known each other a long time. And somehow it feels even longer. And, mm-hmm. um, Will, you have a story of triumph. Yes. Please tell us your triumph. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's easy to remember because there aren't very many of them. So, uh, it, uh, like, oh, geez, probably like, uh, six, six or like seven years ago, I was like, like going through a profound depression that for some reason I was still like refusing to be medicated for. Mm. And, uh, I, it was just like, it's just like having an extremely brutal time with my day-to-day life. And then uh, I, I lived with these two other guys, and one of them told us, at the end of the lease, he was uh, going to move out. And we were like, that's fine, sure. And uh, and he made the mistake of, we wouldn't have said anything to our, our landlord. We would have just moved in a new person, because this guy was around so little, he never would have known. Like, I moved in, and he, I moved in for somebody else, and he had no clue that I was just an entirely different person living in his... Uh, one of his apartments. Okay. So we would have just brought in a new person, but Jeff told them he was leaving uh, around the same time as he told us. So they showed up and they had new new leases with them. And the new leases included a rent hike of like, I think like 14% or something like that, which if you live in an old enough building in Los Angeles, you're rent controlled. And so this rent hike... Uh, you know, 14 is significantly more than the 3% he would have been legally allowed to do. Right. And so it w- this was like, when they first presented us with the lease, we were both kind of like panicking. And I was like, well, look, I'll check and see w- if they can do this because it seems like a lot. So I do the research and, and they come back and I I tell them, I'm like, look, you know, I looked into it and our, our building is, is rent controlled. I confirmed it. And so you you can't actually raise the rent more than three percent a year and may i just interject to ask you are you the type of guy who when a small injustice happens to you you say something or are you a do you swallow a lot of shit no i am uh i believe in the guinness book of world records as uh one of if not the world's biggest pussies Um, (laughs) okay wow really you're not a conflict guy I'm I'm absolutely unable to stand up for myself in really? almost all situations. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so in fact, uh, yeah, and it te- it tends it tends to just like explode out of me. Like uh, one of the roommates I'm talking about, uh, our like friendship was severely hurt uh, by the time I like finally lost my mind on him for all the things he was doing that I was like begging him to stop doing, and he just wouldn't. Well, that's his fault. Okay, so you. You get in contact with the landlord and you tell him it's not cool. Yeah, and he's like um he's like a like a little he's like a little guy. He's a, a kind of person I like despise 
because I looked it up and he owns like multiple buildings, which means he's extremely wealthy to own multiple properties yeah. in Southern California real estate. But every time he shows up, he's wearing a different T-shirt he clearly got for free. Like, <laughs> he, like he shows up wearing like a Veronica Mars crew fleece. Ooh. And it, it's just like, just just pay for your shirts. Like, if you're not going to pay to, like, fix the things in this apartment or, like, maintain the, like, trees on the property, the least you can do when you show up here is be in a shirt I can confirm you paid for because you, like, give any kind of a shit about anything in your life. And he just, like, refused. And he was, like, this little guy. And then we had this British property manager who... You know, he just wasn't a super, he wasn't a super bright guy. And uh, sometimes I feel bad about how much shit we talked about him. And we also know he heard us because sometimes we'd see him outside our window after we'd been doing it. But he is also just like a loathsome figure to me. But they, it wasn't just like, we weren't just like calling them. They kept showing up. Like they would show up at our apartment to oh, talk I to us. Oh, I hate that. I've had landlords that just, just pop in and show up whenever the fuck they feel like it. Yeah, and Dave is also not good at uh, – my other roommate, he also is not good at confrontation stuff. So they would show up, and they clearly were hoping that, like, we just sign this thing. And so finally I'm like, look, we're not going to sign this. It's illegal. Like, it's against the law for us to sign this. I don't even know if it would be valid if we signed it. And so he goes, okay, fine. You guys can either sign this, and you can have a third roommate, or – I won't let anybody else replace your third roommate and the two of you can split your old rent, which would have been way more than what they were raising the rent by. I have never heard of this. Yeah, they were just trying to like strong, they were uh, trying to strong arm us uh, by just being like, well, we'll just deny everyone who wants to, you bring to us to move in. We just like don't have to fill that room. And so like that was an unbelievably... That was an extremely, like, dark night of the soul I had, if I can use, like, I think, like, a term I read in a, uh, a screenwriting book. He also uh, writes, people. He writes. Yeah, hey, uh, I think it was the one written by the guy who wrote Blank Check. Um, <laughs> it, uh, uh, it, it was like, and I was like, it was to the point where I was so sure this wasn't going to work. And a part of the reason I didn't want to do the, the rent increase is because I couldn't afford to do a 14% rent increase. Like... I, I was barely making rent as it was. And so this increase would have just like really done a number on me. So I it got to a point where I was looking at like places in like Long Beach and just like 40, 50 miles outside of the city, like trying to prep for when I would inevitably have to move out. Right. And then I like rewatch a lot of the same television shows over and over when I'm depressed. And I, I do that too. I've been doing that this whole time. It's like comforting, right? Because you don't have to worry about anything unexpected. Oh my God. I actually, in the last couple weeks, started forcing myself to watch movies I'd never seen because I noticed I was just repeating all the same media for myself all over again because I didn't want to have to experience being bored for longer than five minutes if I picked the wrong thing. I have rewatched Entourage, a show I truly <gasps> despise with every fiber of my being, probably 15 times. Oh my god, that's what I should be watching. That is the it, perfect show to rewatch. It, yeah, it's like, it, it's it, it's just, it's a show where 
I think Andy Candler, I heard him describe it this way. It is a show where all conflict is started and resolved with a phone call. Like, it is just the lowest impact television that has ever existed. Yeah, yeah. But it somehow still feels exciting because you're like, oh my God, Ari's got to get to him with those papers to sign that deal so that he could keep having the same standard of living he already has. Okay, well, you lost me with the it's still somehow exciting part. <laughs> Anyways, so, uh, you, I don't know how we got off topic. Oh, well, it's because, uh, right, well, I was going to say, I, I like, I've seen, I've also watched The Sopranos a bunch of times. Hmm. And I was, I was re-watching it, and there was like, and it, it would have been better if it was the episode, but there's just something I put together while I was watching, I don't even know what episode, but like, in the first season... Uh, Tony Soprano is like unbelievably depressed and it gets to a point where he's just sh- like shuff- like he's in bed all day he's just shuffling around in his bathrobe and at one point he goes to buy the paper and an orange juice from a newsstand and as he's walking away these two guys uh, run up on him and try to kill him and he manages to uh, escape the assassination attempt mm-hmm. and that that like snaps him out of it and like brings him back to reality and, like, gives him his, like, zest for life back for a little while. Okay. And there was just some... I was, like, watching that show, and something just, like, clicked in my brain where I was like, no. I, like... I, like... I need this right now. I need... I need someone who I can hate, who I can take all of my energy that is just, like... just, like, scrambling my brain with these bad feelings. I need to take all of that and put that towards hating one or two people with the fire of a thousand dying stars and just like, just only be consumed with that and be consumed with like, not only winning, but like humiliating the people I am in competition with. Oh my God. So before they would come to the apartment and they'd be like, we'd be like, Oh, do you guys want a glass of water? And we were like trying to talk to them nicely. Because in my brain, I'm always like, no, you know, you meet people on their level. You, like, try to find common ground. But it's like some people are bad. And some people have no interest in meeting you on common ground. And they are only interested in, like, taking as much as they possibly can from you. So they probably noticed a shift where now when they started showing up at the apartment, I wouldn't stand up to say hello. I would, like, remain seated on the couch. I would give them very terse one-word answers. Uh, I would, like, barely acknowledge anything they were saying. I would, like, just while they were talking, I would just, like, look around the room. And I also started, uh, like, I started going to, like, uh, like tenants' uh, rights clinics. And I called a couple lawyers that my, fr- uh, my friend gave me. And they were all I, – I discovered a, a magical thing through this process, which is that, like, you can just call the city and ask them questions – if things are legal or not. So I I got to call, I ended up calling the city of Los Angeles and I finally got through to like some in, extremely uh, unimpressed bureaucrat that they had to talk to me. And essentially the gist of what they're saying is they were like, how many names are on your lease? I was like, there are three names. And they were like, well, that means you're entitled to three, uh, three people living in the place. If they refuse to let a third person move in for any reason that isn't good, which is just like a bad credit check or like a bad background check, then you file this form with us. It's a denial of services claim, and the city will reduce your rent by the percent of the service you're being denied, which is 33.33 repeating percent 
And then I believe they hung up on me because uh, they just did, did not want to talk to me at all. Um, and so I like get the form and I download it and I send it to Robbie, who is the property manager, who once again, and we also, we initially we thought Robbie was smart because he was English. And this was like the beginning of my discovery that the idea that British people are smart is insane when in fact most of them are maybe the dumbest people on the entire planet. Oh my God, like, Will! Other, other <laughs> than like maybe Australians, but Australians are happy. Will! So they, they, they are smarter. No, I'm telling you, they're like such absolute louts. This guy, oh my God, he, he continued to invite us to go see his band well after we made it clear that we hated his guts and like didn't ever want him to come around again. <laughs> oh, um, Jesus. He, uh, it, it, so I sent them all this stuff and I was like, look, if you don't just let us find a third person to move in, I'm going to like file this with the city. This will happen. And that's, that's the way it is. We've resolved this. It's done. We're going to continue looking for a third person. And he just emails me back and he's like, uh, well, we'll, um, we're looking into this. And I was like, look, you don't have to look into this. I have the illegal leases you gave us. Like, there's a paper trail for everything that's happening here. So, like, this is the way things are now. They didn't respond to that. We kind of kept looking. And then they kept they kept making meetings with us and then breaking them off. So, like, two hours before we were supposed to meet, they'd be like, oh, we can't actually make it. Can we reschedule? And I'd be like, yes, when? Like, you can come whenever you want. We will be here. And they just wouldn't get back to us for a few days. And it got to the point where it was like a week into the month. So we were like a week late on our full rent because they had just kept stalling this and pushing it back. Why do you think they did that? Sorry? Why do you think they kept pushing the meeting? Why would they keep canceling meetings but making meetings? Well, because then they can be like, well, these guys haven't paid their rent. Oh, shit. Then they can use that against us. But it's like. I, I mean, they texted all this. They text or they'd email. Like, there, there is a full documentation of everything they were doing. So this was not – this was like a real rinky-dink mom-and-pop, uh, like, extortion <laughs> ring they were trying to run here. Right. And eventually it's like Dave is going out of town for – like, he has to go on tour for, like, a month. And we have one last chance to meet with them. They cancel. We try to reschedule. And – we never hear back from them. And then the next day, uh, the landlord's wife, who I've only spoken to once because she only deals with the money. She like handles the checks and stuff. Like one time we had a check go through twice. So she like, I had to contact her and she refunded us and paid us for like the bounce fees and stuff. Uh, she emails me and she's like, the rent is a week late. This is extremely serious. And, uh, Leon, who is my landlord, he tell, told me you guys keep canceling these meetings on him. And so I go back and I copy and paste every single email I've ever had with these guys. Oh, that must have felt delicious. I, I was like vibrating with the most powerful <laughs> sexual energy I've ever <laughs> felt in my entire life. Like, uh. I, I, I did not dare masturbate for at least two days after this because I would have blown up an entire city block. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, just like a new, like, and not only that, you would not have been able to, like, grow crops on that land for decades afterwards. Yeah. It would have been so poisoned with whatever, like, <laughs> malevolent venom was coursing through my veins as I realized, like, 
that he had just been like because he clearly he'd just been fucking either she was in on it and i was about to rope her in and this was also to the point where i was like one or two weeks because i could figure they were going to start the eviction process soon mm-hmm. so i was like i already had talked to some lawyers so i was unbelievably ready to just take them to court um and like sue them and get like a like i don't know like a thousand dollars out of them for like emotional duress because it's you talk to me for five minutes and you're like, we've well, cl- clearly caused this man emotional harm because he's falling apart in front of us right now. <laughs> and it's so I paste all of that into the body of the email and I'm like, please see below. We've been trying to set this meeting with him. They keep canceling. Dave's going out of town and like we want to resolve this. And I was like, and also I've kept a paper trail of like everything I've said and like here's the deal. I talked to the city and this is a rent controlled property and it's illegal to try to raise the rent on us like this. And we're legally entitled to a third night, big email. I send it to her. I get an email back five minutes later. And she's like, Leon can come in the morning. Can you be there? And I was like, well, Dave is leaving tonight. So do you guys also need him there? And she just responds with only you is fine. And I'm like, perfect. I'll, I'll see him there. Uh, so the next morning he shows up, and he already is like a small guy. I'd say he's like five six. Five, you really, you really pushed the small guy thing. Is it, it? You really, it really bothers you. It's it's not that he. Sh- it's it's um. It, it plays into the fact that he looks like um. He looks like a like a troll or like this is just the aura I have of him now of like a like greedy creature that lives under a bridge. <laughs> Jesus, God, you're al- you're alienating so many different groups in this episode. <laughs> Why? Who am I alienating? The British, Look. Australians, trolls, everyone. First of all, the English, who needs them? Second of all, <laughs> the Australians, they know, they love it. That's a part of their whole thing, man. They're like, eh, give us hell. Okay, uh, okay. And, look, and the short, look, it is fine to be short, but it is not It is not fine to be as, like, like nasty and, like, greedy as you possibly can well, also, I am telling you, you show up to my house every day in a different T-shirt you got for free from a movie or TV show that you clearly worked on in some capacity. Like, that will just push me over the goddamn edge. Okay. He so, shows up. He shows and up. And we've already discussed. Normally, he's like 5'6". He shows up. I swear to God, he is like two feet tall. <laughs> like, the, the absolutely, like, pitying, like, or pitiful aura this guy has about him and he like comes in and I am still being the biggest possible prick I can to him. And he walks in and, uh, he like sits down and he's like, (laughs) so, uh, I gotta say, I don't know about you. Uh, but I personally, I've like learned a lot during this process. And he starts, he's like talking so clearly. He's like, cause here's the thing, you know, my, my, uh, my tenants, oh, my tenants love me. My tenants love me. You know, some of my tenants, they get in bad situations. They, they, they don't like where they I find them a new place to live. I help them out with, with that. I don't want anybody to be in a bad situation. I don't want that for anybody to be in a bad situation. And he just, like, rambles for mm-hmm. a good 20, 25 minutes about how great his relationship with his tenants is, how much he's learned, how much he appreciates me, letting them know about these things. And, like, it was very helpful of me, as if, like, they had come to me with this lease and been like, hey, before we give this to you, can you check and make sure all of this is uh, above board? Because we don't want to try anything shifty with you. He like, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, um, he's like, obviously, whoever, you know, if, uh, whoever you want to come in here as long as they can pass the, the credit check and everything, totally fine, not a problem. 
And we'd also wanted a subletter to take over for a month because it was such short-term notice. And they originally were like, no, no subletters. And now to the subletter, he's like, look, you know, we don't allow subletters, but if you just have a guy stay here for a month and he gives you the money and, and we don't know and he doesn't cause any problems, what are we going to do about it? We wouldn't even know. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't know any of that. So he just caves on everything. He gives us a, a new lease with like essentially literally everything we had said in it. And he leaves those. He's like, oh, but uh, look, I know you guys are good for it. You know, let let Dave know whenever you can. Just sign the new one. And uh, he leaves. And like, I just like, it, 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 it it's like I had uh, this thing for a long time where uh, when you're like depressed for long enough, you start to forget that you have depression and you just assume that that is like your natural state. Yes. So it is like. You still like feel you can still feel like happy and joy and stuff, but that you still feel those within the context of just like your baseline being like profoundly like sort of like this void and just like an unpleasant void. Yes, like I am, I am relating to that too hard right now. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's that thing where you're like you know, you, you before you have it, you're like, oh, depression, that's like being sad all the time. And then when you have it, you're like, buddy, I would kill to be sad all the time. That sounds like such an improvement to whatever is going on right now. And he left the leases and he left and I had this mental image of his wife screaming at him the night before when I had like dropped all of this stuff on her and she found out what like low rent grift they had been trying to pull on us and her just like losing her mind and the unbelievable swelling of like pride I felt <laughs> at how how successful I was. And in the end, like, I managed to finally win with the death blow of snitching on this guy to his wife. And it was like, it was like the first time in so long where like it felt like everything had kind of just washed off of my shoulders. And I just, I like just felt fine. Like I just came to a restored sense of total like, pleasant neutrality where I wasn't like skipping down the street whistling because I was so happy or like dunking a basketball off the roof of the apartment I just I was just like I did it it worked you know what Will this is this is this is like an adult dirty fantasy like I don't think a child (laughs) could ever understand how this feels everyone's had a shitty landlord and there is like a sick, a sick satisfaction in this story. You wouldn't think this would be a typical feel-good story, but it, it feels good in a very deep, dark place. I, I I can be like a real like like pain in the ass, like a real piece of shit about like the small stuff. Like I I can just be like a difficult person. Yeah. Um, it's just like in my nature at this point to be difficult about the small stuff. But like about bigger things, I I can be like too. Uh, I have a problem where I, I can be like too uh, sort of uh, emotionally generous. Like that's the part where I'm a real pushover is with like my time and emotions. And right. it was just like uh, the rare – and I – because I'm always like, no, it's bad. It's it's like bad for me to be difficult in that way. And I should always be unbelievably understanding of what every other person is going through. But and this, use that to, this was the one right? area where you could just – Really? It wasn't even that I could just, it was because also Dave, 
there were times where Dave was like, just stop. Why don't we just stop and just accept the rent increase? He was like, look, maybe I could just pay your increase. But by that point, I was like a boulder halfway down the hill. And in my head, I was like, I'll kill him. Like, if he tries to bend, I'll kill him and hide his body until I win. And then I'll call the police and be like, I murdered my roommate. Will and I feel terrible and give me the electric chair. Will you need to like, you need to stop just, now. You're still our hero. Don't keep going. I, I just <laughs> I like needed at that point. I was like, no, I know I'm I know I'm doing the right thing at this point, and like I cannot be stopped. A will and what? <laughs> I'm gonna bring our interview to an end because it's so long. It's so good, but it's so long. <laughs> oh, did it go long? This is classic. I was sure. I was like, "Geez, I hope I've uh, padded this out enough for her." <laughs> yeah, we're on. We're 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 into it. I just want to say this was a very. <laughs> good story and i love that okay, i will say if anyone wants a full list of all the people i would kill and then confess to the police they can just shoot me an email and i'll give it to them because we're running out of time here we're running out of time will thank you so much for being on my podcast um and bringing your raw energy to people's ears during this trying time um thank you thank you so much uh, are you doing okay? Just that's the last thing. Are you doing okay in the quarantine? I feel like I should ask that really quick. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, um, my, uh, I mean, I'm married, so I have like somebody to spend time with who I love and enjoy talking to, and um, she like still has a job, and there's like lots of like food and stuff, and so I just <laughs> try to like cook a, cook a couple times a day and wipe off the counters. And uh, so, like, we're actually doing pretty well over here. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Filled you filled me with, like, shame and embarrassment. Well, I loved that story. And thank you for uh, making us feel really good inside. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Truce Be Told, the podcast. The feel-good episode. Hey guys, do you feel good now? Do you feel better? Seriously, do, do, do you feel any better? Did this episode make up for the fact that you haven't seen a friend or family member in person for two months? Sorry, that got personal. That was a bit of a downer. Don't worry, you will see your loved ones again. You will know the experience of skin-to-skin contact again. This is all temporary. It's all going to be okay. There is life after quarantine. I don't know who I'm convincing now. I'm waving my arms around wildly right now. I'm just sitting here on my bed, on a mattress that has no sheets on it. Why? Because I'm too lazy to clean my sheets. I'm, I'm sitting on a towel. I'm drinking my, my fucking average carbonated water by Bubbly. Actually, you know what? I really don't know why I'm shit-talking them. They've done a good job. It's a good product. Good product. 
everything's going to be fine, guys. It will, it will, it will. Just a reminder, the next episode of Truth Be Told will be the last episode of Truth Be Told, which is really sad, and I'm bummed out about it too. But uh, all good things do come to an end. And uh, I want to remind you that there will be a Q&A section on the last episode. So please submit your questions to me over Instagram and I might answer them on the last episode. If you have a question about me personally or about the Truth Be Told podcast or about podcasting in general or comedy in general or, or acting or show business or whatever, philosophical questions hate mail send me your hate mail whatever you want to send me send something sweet whatever feedback i would love to answer some questions on the last episode it's just fun also we have a nice back catalog now there's a bunch of episodes you can listen to you can listen to the whole show from beginning up until now. And please tell your friends and family about the show. Um, Just because it's ending doesn't mean it can't be of value to somebody else that's looking for a podcast to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Time to do some thank yous. First, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for listening to this podcast. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. Thank you to my guests on this episode. Thank you to Peter Siegel, Amber Nash, and Will Weldon. You were wonderful guests, and you made me feel good. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to thank Matthew Reed, who did the music for this podcast. Thank you to Catherine Fogler, who did the podcast photography, and to Kurt Furla, who did the graphic design on that podcast photography. Thank you to the boys at the Sonar Network, Michael Mangiardi and Cody Crane. They produce this podcast and a lot of other amazing podcasts that you should listen to. The Sonar Network. Give it a listen. Look it up. You'll be glad you did. Thank you to Trevor Pullman, who edits this podcast. He's a lovely human being. And from what I heard, he recently got a cat while in quarantine. Good for him. All right, guys, it's been lovely chatting to you, at you. And I hope it's been equally lovely listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, social distance, and, and stay strong. Mwah! Bye-bye. Sonar Network.